Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. I am your thankful host, Kate Cavanaugh, and each week we dive into the themes of mind, body, and soil together, learning all about the incredible ways in which we are connected to ourselves and to nature. This week, I am bringing you a very special, very topical episode, which we don't normally do around here. This episode is going to be musing on Thanksgiving. And if you're sitting here and you're like, well, you know, it's not Thanksgiving yet. Well, that's because I want to give you plenty of time to order a turkey from this gentleman if you see fit. This is really an episode about poultry and about the history of raising poultry in the United States, about standard bread or what we might refer to more often as heritage breed poultry, and about our food system. It just happens to coincide a little bit with a holiday, and it gave me a fun chance to play around with that. I want to tell you that I was really struck. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting our guest, Frank Reese, who is also joined by Jed Greenberg in today's episode. Many moons ago, after he was featured in Jonathan Safran 4's Eating Animals, and the film was touring, and I sat on a little panel with him in Denver. At My butcher shop, Western Daughters, which is in Denver, Colorado, if you don't know, we've sold Frank's turkeys every year for many, many years. And they're really incredible and different, but I was struck by just how knowledgeable Frank is about our food system, about he really kind of shocked the pants off of me when he got into a conversation about omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acids. And I wish that I had had a chance to dive a little bit deeper with him. But I have put a study in the show notes that shows, and this is, you guys, this is incredible. I know we've talked a lot about polyunsaturated fatty acid contents as it relates to feed, like in the episode number five with Brad Marshall, a little bit in episode 29 with Anthony Gustin. But in this, Frank dives into how studies are showing that his breeds of chickens, despite being fed the exact same ration, are reporting lower ranges of omega-6 fatty acids, which is pretty wild. And I, I didn't know that going into this. This is just a really cool episode. And I thought it actually open. So I'm I'm in upstate New York, and I look at turkeys pretty much every day here on the farm. We have a thriving community of turkeys that live in our woods, and they are beautiful to behold and to watch. They have incredible family systems. They're smart and impressive birds. And in doing this, I actually came across this letter from Benjamin Franklin to his daughter espousing the the many amazing 
attributes of the turkey. And this has been sort of codified in American mythology as Benjamin Franklin saying he didn't want the eagle to be the symbol of the United States, but it's really just a letter to his daughter. And so it reads, For my own part, I wish the bald eagle had not been chosen as the representative of our country. He is a bird of bad moral character. He does not get his living honestly. You may have seen him perched on some dead tree near the river where, too lazy to fish for himself, he watches the labor of the fishing hawk. And when that diligent bird has at length taken a fish and is bearing it to his nest for the support of his mate and young ones, the bald eagle pursues him and takes it from him. With all this injustice, he is never in good case, but like those among men who live by sharping and robbing, he is generally poor and often very lousy. Beside, he is a rank coward. The little king bird, not bigger than a sparrow, attacks him boldly and drives him out of the district. He is therefore by no means a proper emblem for the brave and honest Cincinnati of America who have driven all the king birds from our country." I am on this account not displeased that the figure is not known as a bald eagle, but looks more like a turkey. For the truth, the turkey is in comparison a much more respectable bird, and with all a true original Native America. He is besides, though a little vain and silly, a bird of courage, and would not hesitate to attack a grenadier of the British guards who should presume to invade his farmyard with a red coat on. Now, I don't want to get mixed up in what Ed Robertson deemed during one of his podcasts presentism, right? A a lot of this is looking through the lens of a gentleman in the 1700s and not through our eyes now. But I really loved this little missive, especially because we have a thriving population of bald eagles, as is quite common among regenerative farmers. Will Harris talks about this in the episode that I did with him. But Our bald eagles on the farm love to sit in this tree near the house and they will cry this indignant sort of whine as the crows pick on them. And it's, it's really quite funny to, to behold this regal creature making these very indignant and, and sort of pathetic little noises. I'm really excited for you to hear this episode. This this was originally just going to be a little special topical episode, but it's turned into a full length and incredible exploration of poultry throughout the ages in America. And I think that you'll be as impressed with Frank as I was. Him and Jed are doing amazing things over at Good Shepherd Conservancy, and I can attest to the fact that their turkeys are incredibly delicious and well worth the cost and they don't they don't come cheap but this is the nature of a quality product that has been farmed by real hands and raised outdoors and i highly recommend it if you are local to denver colorado we still have turkeys available for pickup and you can order them on our website at westerndaughters.com 
If you are not in Colorado and would still like to order one of Frank's beautiful birds, you can head on over to heritagefoods.com where they have a selection of sizes ranging from about 10 pounds to 18 to 20 pounds. And they're a really beautiful company to work with. I highly recommend it. Do not have a code for you. I did ask, and it wasn't something that could be done on turkeys specifically. And so this is really just, if you want to support Frank and try this beautiful turkey. I don't want to take up any more of your time because I want you to be able to just dive right into this episode. It is always such a pleasure to be your curious comrade here in exploring all of these ideas together. And so I'm just really grateful and thankful for your listenership. And I want to drive that home that in the six, seven months that this podcast has been running, that we've been growing and exploring together. And I am so thankful that you keep showing up week after week to learn alongside me. If you feel like you have gained some wisdom or some insight from the contents of this podcast, I encourage you to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening, maybe leave a rating and review, or send send this episode to a friend and just get excited about the season together. And so super thankful for all of you. And without further ado, here is Frank Reese and Jed Greenberg from the Good Shepherd Poultry Conservancy. Well, welcome both of you. It's just such an honor to be here. Uh, for those of you listening, I'm sitting down with Jed Greenberg and Frank Reese of Good Shepherd Poultry Conservancy. And it's such a pleasure. Frank, I don't know if you remember this, but you and I sat down on a panel for Jonathan Safran Foer's Eating Animals in Denver many, many moons ago. And, and so I had a chance to meet you then. And I'm just such a fan. Well, thank you. Yeah. I remember my short visit in and out of Denver for the film. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was a whirlwind tour, but it was it was so nice to meet you. And for those listening, my my husband and I have been buying turkeys from you for Thanksgiving for our butcher shop in Denver for many, many years. And so it's really nice to begin to do a little bit of a deeper dive into your incredible raising practices and breeding standards. And just really excited. I thought we might start out. I'm curious what brought both of you to poultry specifically, what that that draw or that interest was in, in raising poultry. Well, I'm a fourth generation Kansas farmer. And as a, as a little kid, I, you know, I grew up in a household where we all had chores and I was farther down in the kid line and my older brother and sister stuff all got sent to the barn. I got sent to the chicken house. And I, I just loved working with them, even as a little kid. And you know, I couldn't wait to get into 4-H and start not only showing cattle and hogs, but also showing chickens. And that led me into the whole world of quality poultry. And I met what I consider many of the, the great breeders and the great masters of the last century who were, uh, were still around and, and the type of poultry, the standard bread poultry that I raise was still number one on farms across America. So I was born into it. 
my parents, my grandparents, I was lucky enough to remember my great-grandparents, everybody had poultry. Uh, you didn't go to the store and buy chicken or turkeys or eggs. Everybody had them in their backyard. And so it was just the world I grew into that I learned to love. And then I got more and more involved. I stayed in 4-H for 10 years. I became a member of the American Poultry Association, which was is the oldest agricultural organization in America, founded in 1873. We're getting ready to celebrate the 150th anniversary this next year. Wow. And so... This was the world that, you know, I went on to become a licensed judge and, and showed at many of the national shows. And that's what led me in. I mean, it wasn't something I decided. It was just it's always been part of my life. And I've always, always loved turkeys, especially. And uh, I've had them no matter what all my life. I love that. I love hearing that. Jed, do you want to share a little bit about what drew you to poultry specifically? Uh, sure. You know, it's a, it's a bit of a different story with me. I didn't, I grew up uh, when I was growing up on a kibbutz in Israel, which is a farming, small farming community. And I didn't even like the poultry there, but it was not like Frank's birds. You know, it was all factory farm and the poultry house was a scary place. I didn't go there. I like to be with the cows. That's where I would, that's where I would go and do the milking and things like that. And, um, and, uh, and then, and then later on, you know, I moved off the uh, off the farm, and uh, and I didn't grow up that way. But uh, I I I wanted to get back into it in my twenties, and I had a lot of interest in doing things different than factory farming. And I, I was researching those things, researching and trying to understand what the real issues were in the industrial farming sector. And and when I was like looking at things. I felt like it wasn't just about not letting the birds go outside or giving them different kind of food, which was really what most of the people were talking about was like, either letting them go outside or just giving them some different food. And I was like, there's something more going on in this industrial farming. And it's not just that. And then I started to hear things about genetics of chickens and that I started reading books and looking more into it. And then I, and then really it all kind of came through Frank because I, I was reading the Eating Animals book, actually, and I saw Frank's section in that, and I was very inspired by him. Just and then, and then I met somebody that knew him at a conference, and and I was at the time working in in a slaughter facility in in Nebraska, and I was really interested in humane slaughter, and that was kind of where my interest was at the moment. But I had a chance to meet Frank, and I went to his farm, and I was very inspired by it. And then meeting the birds and then seeing um, not just the difference in the birds and the quality of their health that I'd seen from the different Cornish cross, the standard industrial bird that you see around. I saw the difference in the health of the birds. And then also when I processed the meat from Frank's birds, I saw just a complete difference in the quality of the, of the meat. And, uh, and that all inspired me. And basically from all that, I, I, you know, over time got closer to Frank and, and I, and, and what I saw was the thing that really solidified it was this was in my mind and what I saw the most important thing that you could do for animals in the farming sector was preserve these breeds and these methods of farming. I didn't see anything else that was as impactful or big or, or, you know, that was going on in, in the world of industrial farming than the fact that all these old breeds and old practices were being wiped out 
And I felt like that I wanted to do something that was important, something in farming that was, you know, that would make a difference and would really help the world. And I saw this as being the biggest thing that I found. And so that's, and also with so little attention on it. So that inspired me to work with Frank and and dedicate my life to it, you know, as well. I think that's beautiful. And I, I can't agree more that just seeing seeing these these birds that Frank has raised and, and getting a chance to cook them and eat them over the years, you just see all of the work that you've done for these breeds and in raising practices in that meat. And it, it, it truly makes a huge difference. I want to dive in a little bit to how we got here in the poultry industry. But before that, I just want to make a little quick note. And I wondered if you might define for us, Frank, standard bread. I want to make sure that people understand your definition of standard bread versus, say, heritage breeds, which I know is a term that you're not as fond of. Yeah, the word heritage, which was applied to these old type birds, was given to them by the American Livestock Conservancy, an organization out of North Carolina. I was at the meeting at Virginia Tech when they said they were, and the first animal given that name was the turkeys. And uh, they were the first, you know, because of what I began to do, it got applied to turkeys. I fought them for two days saying, please don't call them this. They've been called heritage turkey. I mean, standard bread turkeys for, you know, by that, at that time, almost 150 years. And the reason that word is so important is, is it's a way of identifying a breed of poultry, whether it's a chicken, a turkey, a duck, or a goose, that was established by the early work 150 years ago by the American Poultry Association, who gave us the names of these chickens or turkeys that we have today. We call a barred Plymouth Rock a barred Plymouth Rock because that's what the American Poultry Association gave to that particular breed of variety. The bronze turkey was called because that was the name that was accepted by the board of APA. So, But not only wasn't just the name of the animal that was given to the bronze turkey relating to the particular feather pattern of that bird, but it was also all of the utility purposes. In other words, how the bird is shaped, how it is built, how much it should weigh, uh, what what is its purpose on this earth? Is it an egg chicken, a meat chicken? Is it a dual production, which means it can do both? So standard bread has been perfected through the generations. From about 1870 to about 1930, there was a tremendous amount of work that was done through thousands of birds, many generations of breeders and selectors, uh, many of them who were women, which had totally been lost in history, that who were the ones who dedicated their lives often to just one breed or even, even more, just one variety and became masters. Uh, and I would, I'm lucky enough as a young person to have met some of those men and women who did that work, who perfected those breeds. So anyway, if you're going to call a bird a standard bread, that means it must meet all of the standards set up by the American Poultry Association for that particular breed of variety. And that was one of the important things for me in our in some of my early work that I reestablished that certification program that was established by the APA to certify standard bread poultry. 
So all of our chickens and turkeys now come with certification that our birds do meet the requirements for standard bread. I think that's fantastic. Can you speak a little bit to what those early standards were were trying to achieve? Like what was being bred for in those early days? Yeah, the whole purpose of the of, of starting the American Poultry Association was prior to that time of pre-Civil War and that type of thing, much of the poultry that was being raised in America, uh, both chickens, turkeys, ducks, and geese, the the four different species within the association, uh, was basically what we would call commons. I mean, the same thing happened with hogs, same thing happened with cattle. You had range cattle, and then you had registered cattle. Range cattle could be just whatever survived out on the range, and it could be multiple things, but it was not perfected. There was no identification. But then they began to establish the shorthorn, the Angus, you know, the Holstein, the Jersey and stuff. Well, the poultry guys did this even before some of those people. When they began to see that we wanted to identify a particular chicken or turkey that had developed through multiple generations in a particular area or region. If you look at the names of our chickens, uh, Plymouth Rock, you know, that's a breed that was developed in the, in the state of New York and Massachusetts. You have Rhode Island Reds, you have Delawares, you have New Jersey Giants, you know, so the, the, these were actually birds that evolved through multiple generations. And I'm naming mostly American breeds, but also during that time, they began to import a lot more poultry from Europe. And then also, uh, like the Leghorn from Italy, it got that name because the ship that port in Leghorn, Italy, was uh, exporting all these white chickens to North America. And so they named the breed of chicken after the ship they came on. So, but then what happened is, is they had, they, they wanted to perfect them make them better dual production, better farm animals, better quality of meat and egg production. Because up until the 1950s, really 1960s, I mean, in my lifetime, poultry farming was an individual farmer's job. Every farm in America had poultry. That's all been wiped away. But back then, that's, you know, they began then to develop particular breeds and varieties for particular regions. There were certain breeds that did better in the south. There was some breeds that did better in the north. Some breeds did better in mountain regions. Some breeds did better, uh, you know, in hotter climates or high humidity. So that's what the APA began to do. And that was all part of that evolution uh, of of starting in 1873 and it really didn't start really getting perfected until almost the beginning of the of the 20th century. So it, it's taken them a long time to reach those points of where we are today. Thank you for walking us through that. I think this is so important that an animal be suited to its place. I mean, that really helps it thrive and be hardy in that environment. And be connected with all of the the biodiversity within that ecosystem. I want to, you've kind of taken us so beautifully right up to where things begin to shift a little bit within the poultry industry. And I think that this is 
so important to highlight just how much has changed. And I, I pulled a couple of statistics, both from you guys and, and from other places on poultry, just before you give us this history to give us an idea, just kind of how much this has changed. So from 15 pounds of chicken consumed around the world time of World War II to I found estimates everywhere from 65 to 100 pounds of chicken that are consumed per person per year today. Taking this from what was a pretty high-end gourmet product that that was not commonly eaten to, I think, what most people would consider a, a cheaper and every night kind of meat. And at this point in time, about 26 billion pounds of chicken is produced in the U.S. and it represents a $30 billion industry, which tells you about the price per pound of chicken a little bit over a dollar per pound standard. And I just think that this is such a wild trajectory. We also see chickens grow in size from around two to three pounds in the 1940s to somewhere over nine pounds with averages around six to seven pounds today, a 364% increase in size on average. Um, and so this is just a place where a lot of things have truly changed. And I wondered if you might talk about the poultry industry and how that shifted and how that really has become the standard model for concentrated animal agriculture that we know today that exists not just in poultry, but beyond to beef and hogs. Yeah, it's, it's about a 50-year history of where we got from the 30s uh, and the great huge changes really didn't happen that long ago, the 1990s. But in the 30s, they began to do more and more, various things had to come into place, electricity, trucking, uh, electric incubation, that whole thing. I mean, uh, you know, to, and then also, as people began to leave the farms and move into the cities and into factories, fewer and fewer people were producing food for more and more people. Prior to that, most everybody produced, I mean, there was chicken farms in, in people's backyards in New York City, you know, in 1900. So it was just a whole different system. But as these technology became, and as the railroads and the refrigeration had to be there and all the stuff to transport, then particular regions in the United States, a lot of it was right here in the central United States, became the center. I mean, at one time, the state of Kansas was the number one producer of eggs in the nation. That's because there are hundreds and thousands of farms here, and but all the other stuff had to come together. But then what happened a little bit at that time is particular, certain particular varieties and breeds of chickens allotted themselves to be better suited for this type of mass production. And that was the Newham, the Bard Rock, the Wyandotte. And some of these breeds then just were more reliable for farmers and being able to get them to market. And... But then what happened is, is World War II, and World War II began to change everything. What happened after World War II is, is the industry 
which included our own government in Washington and everything, began to have more and more power. And all these soldiers came home and they were sent to our land-grant universities that were now taking over because they were being paid by either the government or by these huge food corporations. You know, it was really the grocery industry who set us up. And they they went to the Ag Department in Washington and said, we need uniform production. We need every chicken coming down the line to look like the one before. They, they could no longer, I mean, this is part of what Tyson, Mr. Tyson of Tyson Poultry, this was his big thing. This is part of what he did, but that's another story of, of being able to produce these chickens that all looked the same and all looked identical. So the Chicken of the Tomorrow contest happened in 1948, and they went to what was then at that time some of the larger hatcheries that were producing broilers at that time. At that time, there were still pure standard bread poultry still being produced for the meat market, for the broiler market. But they were beginning to do some crosses. They were beginning to cross New Hampshire with Cornish and, and a few things, just trying to put a few more pounds. But they hadn't faced what happened many years later, and that was the rate of growth and feed conversion. At that point, they were just trying to put a little more breast meat on the bird, and that started it. But then what happened is, is the people that were con- that had control over their their poultry no longer did. It, it then went to the universities. The land grant universities stepped in and and built these massive buildings for to start producing what then eventually would become the broilers and the egg layers. And then, I mean, I don't know if you want me to get into why chickens grow so fast today. I do. I think I, I want you to go there. I think that the, the first, yeah, I mean, that's just like kind of two parts to it. The first part is kind of as the industry, industrialization is happening, the poultry industry is growing, World War II causing to increase poultry production. Things were growing. Chicken of Tomorrow contest, they're looking for, you know, to breed bigger birds, to breed them. But everything is still based on those original genetics of these birds that were really bred to live healthily. You couldn't breed them any other way because otherwise they would have all just died. We didn't have the inputs and, and the ability. They were all bred they were all standard bred birds at this point. And even if they were crosses, they were just F1 crosses, which means just one standard bred bird with another. And, um, and the, you know, and then you would just cross those two. And so these birds were all really healthy. They were all really healthy and they were trying to industrialize them, but they didn't really have a way to, to get there. So that's kind of the first piece of just industrialization of just the industry as a part of also this the great industrial revolution. And then the next piece is when they made the breakthroughs in breeding. And that's what really kind of, you know, this industry was primed. And then this kind of set it off was the the breeding changes just completely transformed everything, which I think Frank is going to get into next. Yeah. I want to talk about those breeding changes, but I first kind of wanted to talk about, you said something that I thought was really interesting that a lot of this advanced with advances in technology, with all of the sudden our food is being grown in more and more concentrated areas and then being shipped to 
really grocery stores across the country. Like we begin to, our shopping pattern changes instead of having birds in every backyard and, and purchasing groceries, meat, and things like that locally, whether that's from a butcher or a farmer, all of a sudden things also begin to concentrate on the consumer end at the grocery store. And I, you said something, and I just want to pick it apart that the grocery industry really set us up for this. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you got to remember in the 1950s and even until the 1960s, the, the, the majority of poultry being sold, uh, chickens especially, 70 to 80 percent were still whole birds and that people were still buying whole birds, taking home and cooking. You know, prior to 1930, you, you bought birds, they still had the head on, feet on and the guts inside. The whole idea of eviscerating was whole new technology. But the consumers back then wouldn't buy a chicken unless they could look at the eyes and look at the feet and tell, you know, that told them how old the bird was and how fresh it was. But then that all changed because, there, you know, World War II brought in a lot of technology. And one of those was speeding up, killing, processing, packaging and transporting meat from here to Europe or to, you know, to the war effort. So a lot of that technology stayed. And where today, and I've noticed this just within the last few years, a few years ago, it was 68%. Now we have jumped to 78% of all chicken meat, because you gave those numbers in those huge volumes, um, are sold as value-added. Yes. That only about 11% of the market today in grocery stores is whole birds. Wow. So... And 68% of all chicken being raised in these billions of chickens is really for the fast food industry. Very few consumers today buy a whole chicken, take it home and cook it or cut it up. Everybody wants prepackaged, pre-cooked, pre-breaded, frozen, already prepared. You know, that's why Costco, their number one thing they have is the rotisserie chicken. I mean, they just built a whole new farm in Nebraska where they're raising billions of industrial chicken just for that because it brings people in the store. Yes. So the industry, you can't blame them. They respond to where the money is. And so the idea, you know, that whether it's organic, free range, all natural pasture raised doesn't change any of that. And so that's that's the results of what we have. But the numbers that they're raising, I mean, just every time I turn around, another burger place has got a chicken salad or chicken breaded chicken sandwich on there. You know, I mean, Chick-fil-A is now number one. Yeah. And this is really a result of changing that breeding stock. And so I think that's a good place to take us back to the chicken of tomorrow and how we end up with this monopolization, really, of chicken genetics. And so if you'll walk us through that. And I, I think there's just one other thing that we should probably touch on also before we do that. Um, And the, the only other piece that I would add in is to understand the immense difference in the culinary side of things that chickens represented to Americans back then they do today. Like when you mentioned the numbers and you were talking about small chickens and the big chickens, right? That's true. But that was chickens of those ages. And now we're killing, you know, the modern industrial chicken is being killed at six or seven or eight weeks. 
35 to 47 days is is yeah, industry. That's standard. long. Yeah. Yeah. Your little yeah. fried chicken and Colonel Sanders in the buck is 38 days. Yeah. So um and those birds are when you when you only have a, now sometimes standard bread birds are killed that young, like that might be like, but usually that was only done with a, a spring chicken, a, a broiler chicken. So part of the interesting thing is, you know, you have broilers, fryers, roasters. Right, we have these terms, but today they basically are meaningless, just maybe a little bit bigger. But the difference in age might be only a week or two. But traditionally, and the, these were USDA standards, and the birds really had to be of certain ages. A broiler had to be something like um, no more than uh, eleven weeks or something like that. About, um, up to like, usually around eight weeks was a broiler, and a fryer was twelve to twenty weeks, and a roaster was a bird that was was six months. And less than a year. That would be, uh, sorry, a roaster would be six months less than a year. And all these birds had different flavor profiles and they used for different cooking. The, right? The broiler was used for broiling. And it was a young bird, it was more tender and it was used for broiling or for grilling. You had the middle size where it was used for frying and, and different kinds of uses like that. That between three to, to six months, usually three to five months was a normal size. And then six months to up to a year, but usually six to nine months, you have the roaster. And those would be the big special occasion birds. And those are really the most popular. And they were used oftentimes on Sundays, on special occasions. And it was considered to be like a special thing that you would buy. And then you also had stewing fowl, which is my favorite, which is a That's very my favorite old too. bird. <laughs> right, yeah. a very old bird. And when you get it from the real good breeds like Frank's birds, it's just it's even better than anywhere I've ever had it, which is almost impossible to find. I've never found anything else like except for Frank's Farms, really old, well-bred Bard Rocks or New Hampshire's that are, you know, an old hen. I mean, the meat is just amazing and nobody, you can't find that in any stores anywhere in the United States. You won't find that anywhere. And so you had all the, and then you had the different breeds and different breeds had different flavors. And, you know, so there was so much diversity and, and, and and flavor and different kinds of birds that you could buy um that was kind of the industry it was very different today everything is the same like frank said they made everything the same everything everything is super young no texture to it whatsoever and um and and so just to understand also there was uh, the whole the way people ate the way people cooked it was the way people bought the chicken was all different i've been compiling old cookbooks and you know most of these old cookbooks say get yourself a young chicken get yourself a broiler get yourself a stewing hen for stews you know they have they they talk about what kind of chicken to get and all that's kind of been lost and that's another just piece i think that's important to look at as we look at how chicken used to be and how it is today and this just like these all these other things that we're talking about was changed through these breeding changes that happened Yes, and and through the way that I think Americans cooked, which evolved heavily, especially in the in the 1950s when convenience was was really heralded as as microwave meals and and getting women out of the kitchen and whatever that was that had a lot of long term consequences on our ways of cooking and carrying through not just you know our standards of how we farm and standard bread poultry, but also of how we how we cook and interact with our food in the kitchen. Makes a huge difference. It does it does? I I know that I love a stewing hen, and so I'll just I'll just put that there. My favorite birds that we raise are we usually do barred rocks, and we'll keep we'll keep a good handful over for a year or two, and 
that that's that's it for me. That's all I want are coal roosters. That's my favorite. That's my favorite to cook. And so does this kind of bring us to a good place to explore the chicken of tomorrow? Yeah, it, well, the chicken of tomorrow just set up the the beginning of industrial hatcheries is basically what it did. I mean, those names that are still being used today. And of course, what has happened to the whole realm of industrial genetics is we're basically down to two companies throughout the world that still keep those old names like Bantress and and Hubbard and, and Cobb and all that. They still they're still carrying those names of those men and women from 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. Um, but now it's a whole different thing. The way in which the modern industrial chicken and turkey is produced today, it takes a factory farm. No individual could do it, you know, because you have to have the system of genetics. And, and now, of course, they've done the complete genome uh, so now they can identify certain genetic characteristics and mutations that allow us to be able to get a eight or nine pound chicken in eight or nine weeks. But how that all started was, I'll try to go through it very quickly because it's a long story. The, the first mutation identified uh, was within a flock of leghorns. Um, a chicken within this flock at Cornell University, because, I mean, production had already began to go to the land-grant universities. They noticed they had this little hen that was short-legged, very curly feathers, almost silky-like, and uh, that she grew very quickly, but she wasn't very healthy. But they were curious about what this mutation was. And that they noticed how that she also put on an extremely amount of fat, but they got a few more of those type of mutated birds out, and uh, they they began to do some studying on and figure out. And then they crossed them with some white Plymouth Rock, uh, and they got some chicks out. And those chicks seemed to be a little healthier, but they still grew extremely fast and so on. So now we've jumped along here about ten years afterwards, and Mr. Tyson of Tyson Chickens. Uh, began to realize is that he had to come up with something far more uniformed that grew better, grew faster, had better feed conversion if his company was going to survive. So he went to North Carolina State, uh, met with Dr. Paul Siegel, and they began to do research on what they could do to slowly improve the rate of growth and feed conversion. Well, Dr. Siegel knew about this mutated chicken that was back in Cornell, and he began to seek it out. Well, that some of those genetics had already gone to Europe, and they were beginning to use these animals to study morbid obesity, because they, they began to find out these birds had a lot of the same symptoms of cardiac issues, diabetes, and everything that you see in morbid obesity. But anyway, he brought well, them they, back. They call it the time. obese strain, right? The obese strain. Well, that. Eventually, the, the industry doesn't like that name. They like to call it the growth enhancement. <laughs> of course they do. But it is, it is a deformity. It, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a mutation. It's a form, and this gets more complicated, and Jeff can get into all the various things, but it's a form of, uh, starts out as hyperthyroidism, turns into hypothyroidism, and so, but, you know, we're talking 
60, 70 years ago. Now they have extremely perfected it. And you can actually go back and see the charts, how each decade or each generation, they were able to maybe to increase rate of growth by a quarter of a pound or half a pound. So if you look at the broilers in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, there's a huge difference uh, as they began to. And then when they did the genome study with the Chinese, and with Uppsala University in Sweden, they were able to isolate that gene. And then what I, to me, the great uh, interesting thing was, is when they found out it was tied into a form of dwarfism. And so dwarfism is when you've got a normal, you know, the difference between a small person and a dwarf, a small person, the torso, limbs, and everything are all normal and equal and balanced. But in a dwarf, or in dwarfism, you have a normal-sized torso with four shortened limbs. This is what they've done to the chicken and the turkey. Um, they are, there's a reason, and, and of course now we have, the industry is brilliant. They have hardly wiped out everybody's memory. And so now when people go to the grocery store, they think that huge-breasted chicken in the wrapped up there in the plastic with the short little legs and limbs is normal. Because that's all they've seen for 50 years. But that's a form of dwarfism. Well, within that dwarf gene also comes the obese gene. The gross, you can actually do a research and, and type in obese gene, and all these generations of research and papers will come up and in dwarfism. But along with it comes many other health issues. The same thing that if a human being weighs five or 600 pounds, and this is a huge problem in our country today, more but huge. Obese. Huge. Come all the other issues. Yes. Of cardiac, diabetes, bowel problems, irritable bowel, Crohn's disease. In fact, the number one problem that the industry has today within poultry production is necrotic enteritis, which is a direct result of morbid obesity. Uh, you can't ask an animal to consume such huge amounts of feed because these chickens are growing at a jet fuel rate. So they must consume a tremendous amount of calories to compensate for that. So their internal organs, a lot of this work was done at the um, university in New Hampshire. Uh, there was a wonderful paper that came out did in the, and he actually did a comparison of the heritage chicken, the New Hamp and the modern broiler. And it's a, I mean, I don't want to get on, it's a long paper where he does all the comparison, what's happening to the rate of growth, the oxygenation, all this kind of stuff. This is a formed animal. Yes. And I, I, I wanted to highlight that, like, this is a process of breeding for disease, breeding for an unhealthy animal in favor of yields and, I mean, ultimately in favor of profits. But I think what you've highlighted here is really important. And I we are seeing those models. And it's important to remember that animal models of disease are often used for looking at humans. And, and while mice are the standard, and there are these obese mice that they use in studies, chickens have also been used yep. to look at like the effects of mycotoxins and feed sources and, and liver function and things like that. And 
here we are eating an un, an unhealthy animal. And I think that that is something that's really worth highlighting as well as, I love that you put it this way, we've wiped out our memory of what that chicken was. We are now two generations plus removed from anything resembling a, a healthy and well-adapted chicken. Right. And turkey. Yeah. One of the, and I just to, just to, to give a sense of the health situation with these birds is the only way they're able to get away with pushing the birds physical limits this much is because they kill them so young. If these birds are kept past six or eight weeks, they very quickly will overeat and 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 die. They they're they they don't last long. Like the presidential turkeys that are part of year, those are industrial turkeys. They only last about a year, and they always basically die within a year. These are birds that can't really live long, and if they can even live that long, they have to be put on on substantial feed restrictions so they don't eat themselves to death. And that's what they have to do to all the breeding stock. And one of the things to um, to just clarify for people is these obese strains, you can't just give the straight obese strain mutation to the consumers. It doesn't produce the right kind of bird. And so what they've actually done is that they, they have produced several variations of the obese strain and and isolated several variants of it and they cross all those variants together in order to get the bird that comes to market so a purebred bird is you know a bird that is uh, uh the parents look like the kids uh, the kids look like the parents a barred rock uh, a new hampshire cornish leghorn there's a lot of these different birds now there were originally pure strains that went into these lines that they do for breeding of the birds today but Today there are no breeds in the lines, and actually, I've talked to some of the people in the in the genetics companies before, and they said, "No, these birds aren't considered breeds. There are no breeds. They're they're not considered a breed." And what you actually have is the Cornish cross that people eat in the store today is actually F14 hybrid, and there's 14 lines crossed in order to get there's 14 crosses made in order to get the bird or, or more. It's at least an F14 hybrid. And so the way that works is that if you're eating a, a, a bird in the store, and this would be every bird in every store in the country. This is not, doesn't matter if it's free range or if it's pasture raised, virtually every bird in every store in, in the country is this that you're buying for meat. This is pretty much everything. There might be a couple here or there, but, you know, the people selling, you know, sometimes slower growing hybrids, but they're still the same system, the same kind of bird to just mix something else in to slow down the growth a little bit. But either way, what it is, is you have your bird that you get from the store. That's that's the F-14 hybrid. And um, that whole system is needed to create this bird that grows so unnaturally fast. This is not a natural thing. This isn't just, oh, I just want to breed the faster growing birds. This is something that is includes a lot of genetic engineering, tracing and isolating those gene sequences, doing gene sequencing of birds and getting just the right breeders in place this is something that takes teams and costs billions of dollars to create this is not something that you know you can just do in your backyard or anything like that and so just to understand a little bit of the system that goes you know that is behind this is is really important and then to understand that you know all those birds in that system above the birds that you're getting in the store they all have to be put on those feed restrictions because otherwise they just eat themselves to death and so sometimes those are called 
starvation diets and the birds are always wanting to eat more. They're never getting enough food because otherwise they just, you know, they just, they just won't breed and they will die eventually. So that's kind of the, 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 the birds that we're getting restored is built upon this, this bigger system. And, you know, part of the understanding is just not understanding, whoa, how much have they changed the birds? Understanding the system that is the, that creates that bird is just for me that was wow that's crazy now i really understand this was the first time when i looked at industrial poultry and i said oh now i understand the gravity and and the immense size of what's going on everything else i never really i never really saw anything else that really matched you know the rhetoric but when i saw this i was like wow this this is a big story and this breeding really allows these birds to, hmm, they are best suited to this very industrial, very concentrated, very yield-focused environment that has brought them into just production. And I just I just want to highlight that. Do I have that right? Yeah, in fact, that to me is one of the saddest things is when I have, and, and nobody's doing this intentionally, they just don't know. But I have gone to some of these pasture-raised places where they're raising organic Cornish rock or, or industrial turkeys, and they've got them in these tractors, they're shoving them across the ground, or they're pasture-raised. Those animals suffer terribly because, as what you just said is exactly right, these birds were genetically engineered and designed for intense production. They do their very best, confined in a building, with a controlled environment, because those poor little baby birds have are just on the edge of survival at any one point, and they must have a controlled environment to have the least amount of suffering. I mean, if I was going to buy industrial chickens and eat them, I would buy the factory industrial chicken because they have provided them with the finest health compared to anything. The other part that I, I want to get into just shortly is, is, to me, one of the important parts of a person who has given their life to animals and poultry is that ability for that individual farmer to be a part of the life cycle of that animal, to be able to have generations on my farm and reproduce them and, and, and know the parents and the grandparents and, and naturally mate, have hens that still have all the characteristics of motherhood, that will still sit on eggs, hatch them, take care of her babies, uh, whether it be chickens or turkeys. All of that is completely gone from poultry production nowadays. None of these, 100% of all the turkeys being sold are the results of artificial insemination because we have so radically changed the, the skeletal muscle shape by because the same thing they did to broilers, they did to turkeys. George Nicholas modeled his tur the first industrial turkeys right after the broilers uh, and foreshortened the limbs and increased the breasts and foreshortened the breastbone, which made it impossible for that turkey now to naturally mate. Which, you know, if you look at it through the eyes of the industry, it has multiple good, Absolutely. you know, they're cheaper to raise. But the real reason why they did it was is they tried to patent this and the federal government wouldn't let them because the only way you, you can patent 
like what they did to corn and milo, because that was actually GMO, genetically modified organisms, where they took an organism from another plant and put it together, and that they could patent. They didn't do this with, they couldn't do this with poultry. What they did was genetic engineering, where they selected certain mutations within the animal to produce this mass-produced animal. But as a result, they took away that animal's ability to reproduce. But that was brilliant because the reason they were trying to patent is they wanted to control production. They wanted all the money. They wanted to give chickens to these farmers that are raising broilers for them. And so they couldn't keep them and reproduce them. That's what they did. If you get a, if you are raising turkeys for Cargill and they bring you 10,000 turkeys or 100,000 turkeys to put in your barns, you, you know, you can't keep them and reproduce them. They won't do it. Makes you and dependent. So it was brilliant what they did. Uh, it was a way of, of getting total control of the product. And it's like Jed just said, they had billions of dollars invested in this science, you know, but the whole thing is artificial. Without man's intervention, if man didn't intervene, unlike the chickens I have, if man didn't intervene, this would all disappear in a few months. Which makes it vulnerable in a lot of ways. And I I want to highlight, you know, so here we have this animal and breed monocrop. And I, I love that you use that phrase because I think it really, it really highlights that. And it does. It makes it vulnerable both to, you know, if everything were to collapse, these wouldn't be able to breed themselves, but it, they're also vulnerable to disease, to bacteria, to viruses. But if there's anything that is really frightening, this is starting to scare me, is, is you know, I, there was an article written in 1973 from a poultry scientist warning the poultry industry that early of what they were doing. And he even warned, he said, you are going to come up with diseases that we don't even know about yet. You are going to cause such disaster. We're going to come up with the diseases that we're no longer going to be able to cure. And this is what's happening. Bird flu has killed 50 million turkeys already this year. And and it seems to be getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And this is what, you know, if we continue down this route, you know, it's going to collapse. And what's now, you know, because not only is it killing chickens and turkeys, you know, which will kill my birds and everything else, but it's now it's killing the wild birds, the ducks, the geese, it's killing sparrows and hawks and owls, and they're finding this virus everywhere. And then just recently, a whole new virus just showed up that is, is just come out of Minnesota. You know, when is this going to end? Yeah. Well, I think that brings us to a really good place to talk about when this might end and what we can do and what it means to create and preserve biodiversity within these breeds, which is what you're doing with Good Shepherd Conservancy. And so what does preserving this biodiversity for these standard bred poultry breeds that are on the brink of extinction? And I think that's important to note too. Let's let's talk about what that looks like. Well, it's sort of one of the things that Jeanette Berenger, which I've always liked when she said the Lysar Conservancy, she says, if we lose these, and we've already lost quite a few, if we lose these birds, they're gone forever. You cannot bring them back. 
And what's unique about poultry, unlike hogs or sheep or the ruminants, the mammals, you know, they you know, they have these big labs now where they've gone around and collected endangered sperm or endangered eggs uh, from the cow or the sheep or the hog, and they're storing them in these cryo things and all that. Can't do that with poultry. You can't freeze a chicken egg and bring it back. Sure. Scientists still haven't been able oh, to do that. Gosh. Now, there's Canadian scientists scientists who have been able to pull some of the genes out of an egg and, and do it. But the thing about it is, is once they did that, they can't reproduce the phenotype, mm-hmm. you know. So in other words, like the bronze turkeys I have here, and thank you for buying some of them, uh, have been here in Kansas on this prairie for over 110 years now. Their ancestry, I know, back to 1890, back to Pennsylvania, before they came by train out here to Kansas. And so their ancestry before that was in upstate New York and back in 1840. But the original birds that were used to make those through these last 200 years no longer exist. So you could maybe go out and make something that looks something like what I have, but they won't be because I have a bird that has survived in this environment in, in this land for almost 200 years that has evolved to survive and to live through this. And if we lose it, you cannot reproduce it. You cannot bring it back. I mean, I think it's wonderful that people want to save gorillas and rhinos and chimpanzees and everything, and, and I, I do too. But we have some historic birds that have been part of our world, part of our life, part of our farms for 300, 400 years that are disappearing. In fact, the World Health Organization says we're losing one diverse animal, a farm animal worldwide every month. So we're losing these things very quickly. And I'm trying desperately as I'm getting old to figure out what am I going to do to save them? You know, there is no, you know, it's, it's really difficult. And people, you know, and once they're gone, they're gone. That's it. I mean, the Livestock Conservancy out of North Carolina and the American Poultry Association are very aware that this is happening. But, you know, there's these limitations, Uh, you know. And one of the ways I'm trying to do this uh, in the conservancy is we're trying to get them back on the farms again. We've got to bring them back, you know, because so many people have tried this, raising barred rocks or turkeys that they get from these catalog hatcheries is what I call them, and they fail. And they try two or three years and they give up, you know, because they don't know how to breed the quality anymore. They don't know how to improve the stock. You know, I'm old enough. I remember my bronze turkeys. They were the king in this country. They fed America from 1870 to 1950. They were raised by the millions in this country. You ask a first grader to draw a picture of a turkey, this is what they draw even today. So it has this history, but they're disappearing really rapidly. In fact, I just got an email last week from Jeanette Berenger from the Livestock Conservancy, and the number of breeder stock, both commercial and non-commercial, in America has dropped in half. Do you know what that number is sitting at? I'm just curious. Around 70,000, which is minute. Dr. Ed Buss from Penn State, who was the head geneticist at Penn State University, who was a wonderful man. He's some, I don't know, I haven't talked to him for a while. He's almost 100. But 
he always told me if you really want to keep a genetic line alive and moving and viable, you need at least 20,000 in one place. And so you actually, what you would need is 20,000 here and 20,000 over here. As my dad would always tell me, if you've got a problem, look to Mother Nature. What would Mother Nature do to correct this? And so, you know, and Dr. Ed Buss told me, he said that the problem with the industry and the modern industrial genetic scientists today is they truly believe they're smarter than Mother Nature. Yes, they do. And it's dangerous. Yeah, that they can, whatever issue, and this is what's happened with the broiler industry and the turkey industry and the egg industry, which is actually worse than the other two, that they can outsmart whatever issue they get. But eventually, Mother Nature will win. I want to tease something out here, and I'm curious if you might speak to this at least briefly. When we're talking about preserving biodiversity and preserving these these standard bred poultry breeds on farms, do we also have to talk about preserving some of these small rural farms and maintaining these traditional farming practices, that it's not just the biodiversity of animals, but of how the fabric of our our farms and rural communities function? You know, I had many, many mentors and many wonderful men and women as a young person who taught me. Of course, the main one was Norman Kardosh, Uh, who was my main mentor. And, you know, he began to realize even back in, in, in fact, this year, he'll be gone 20 years. He began to see his life work dying, you know. And so I made a promise to him that I would try to save these birds. But what you just talked about, he said, don't let them forget the people, you know, so that when I look at certain breeds or certain whatever, I think of the farmer behind them that I'm old enough to have remembered those people. And this part of what I'm hoping the Conservancy will do, and I think some of the best hope I see is in the youth, because, you know, young people today, um, they don't want to raise industrial poultry. And even the few farmers who I have raising turkeys for me, they never want to go back to industrial. You know, they said part of the fun of raising them is seeing these animals act normal, you know, because they didn't. Now they know what normal is and what's natural. The question of and there's been numerous articles written, you know, I know eastern Colorado farming is dying at a rapid rate. Western Kansas is almost gone and we need to reteach what we were telling farmers, you know, when I was a kid, all farmers were diverse. You know, my mom would always say, well, you know, if this failed, we got this to back us up, or if this fails, this will back us up. You know, my mom said during the Depression, if it wasn't for the chicken eggs, a lot of farmers would have starved to death. Because a lot of times, the you know, if the crops failed and the cows didn't reproduce, the chicken somehow got them through it. So what I'm trying to get is, is we need to go back to diverse farming, that you aren't a turkey farmer, you aren't a chicken farmer, you aren't a hog farmer, but you are a chicken farmer, hog farmer, wheat farmer, corn farmer, and maybe something else and something else. And all of this together in, in, in moderation, it's like when people come to me and say, can I raise your turkeys for a living or can I raise your chickens for a living? I always say no, but 
you can add, if you do it correctly, an extra ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year to your family income. But once you try to make it a total, you you know, per that one single thing, then you begin to go down that road that the animal has to pay the price for that. So the only thing is along and hopefully the the conservancy will help do this we need now there are a few things you could do and that's open a hatchery if we could get a quality hatchery and we don't we don't need just one hatchery we need regional hatcheries where people uh can raise quality because the demand is great but there's no place to go get it and the few people who have attempted this is have failed because Part of what they also want the conservancy to teach is not only how to select. You know, my mentor, Norman, one time, you know, this is 40 years of him coming here every fall and helping me pick my breeders for the next year. Finally, close to the end, before he died, he said, well, you finally learn. And so it takes generations of doing this. But we we got to start. We've got to start teaching the next generation. And then the other part of it, which Jeb is really good at and I'm terrible at, is the economics. How do you sit down and figure out how much does each egg cost me to produce? How much does each turkey cost me to produce? What is it going to cost for me to get it to market? Who is my market? Where are they? Who's going to buy this stuff? And you have to, and that, I always tell people, you got to figure that out before you ever buy a bird. And this is not taught anywhere now. No land-grant university, nowhere is this taught. If you go to get a degree in poultry science today from the University of Arkansas or Mississippi or North Carolina, they're basically teaching you how to be a salesman in their offices, in their towers of Tyson or Cargill. But you're never going, if you want to touch an animal, you've got to get your PhD in genetics. So, you know, this is not being taught. And, and, And of course, Someday it's going to be important because we, we are going to end up some, you know, this route. And, and also, you know, they always say we got to do this type of farming because, you know, we got to feed the world. If you look at factory farming worldwide and all, the, and this is, comes out of the, the um, United Nations numbers, there's the whole book, which I got from them. They're feeding about 60% of the world industrial farming is. The other 40% of the world is still on substantial farming, substance farming. farming. Yeah. And so that is a huge lie that we must do this type of farming because we've got to feed the world. If you're poor and in the Amazon, in the jungle where there's no electricity, there is no Colonel Sanders or Chick-fil-A around the corner. And yet, the type of farming that, you know, the only, the only reason we can do what we do in America is we're so rich. Yes. I can, I can just go a little bit off that. And um, I think partially to answer the question about the conservancy and what we're doing, we should just also give a little bit of history about Frank and how he got to where he was. I think we kind of got earlier the Frank when he was younger and learning you know, and growing up with poultry and all these things. But then the something changed about 20 years ago. And and I think partially it would also be helpful to just talk a little bit about what happened to the standard red poultry world between 
the 50s as industrial poultry started to take over and then the hand-grown university started to take hold of things, what happened was that standard poultry became uh, a thing which was mostly done for shows, show poultry, poultry shows. And that's the majority of what goes on today. And there's a really fun documentary out right now uh, called Chicken People, which talked about modern poultry shows in that world which people can check out. And and that was really what standard poultry was for a very long time in between those generations. That's what it became. And that's what the vast majority of these birds that are around today, they're grown for shows and not really grown so much for production anymore. And Frank was involved in that world primarily before he started to raise birds again for, for meat. And before Frank did that, before Frank started raising birds for meat, he was still raising them in a way which was for good utility quality because that's what he had learned. But the vast majority of the birds today, they're raised just more to have the right feather patterns and not to also have the right utility, the right you know rate of growth and, and egg laying and all those types of things to make it a good production bird as well. And the way that story started was uh, about 20 years ago, Marion Burroughs from the New York Times was going around looking for the best tasting turkey in America. And through looking through different things, she got she she got introduced to Frank and she tried out some of his turkeys and his turkeys won that contest. And after that, Frank um, got together with Heritage Foods to start producing turkeys for Thanksgiving. And the next year, Frank, you raised 500 turkeys, right? Yep, 500 the first year. And and ever since that time. Frank has been growing, and, and at that time, there was no real heritage turkeys. There wasn't even the idea of heritage turkeys. There was no turkeys. There was no standby turkeys on the market, really, except for, you know, small farmers basically doing some calls, and, in the, in, you know, Frank was doing a little bit at the time. And then Frank has had to figure this all out, figure out how to bring these birds back to market. And, and, and he's been able to be successful doing that, but it's been a huge learning experience and a lot of trial and error and kind of refiguring out how to introduce these birds into the modern industry has been extremely difficult. And while he's been doing that, other people have started to now get into heritage, but the vast majority of them aren't actually doing standard bred birds. They're, they're saying heritage and they're raising some kind of a mix of hybrid and maybe some old you know, heritage lines that are not quality and they're mixing it with hybrid birds or they're selling slow growing hybrids and saying they're heritage or heritage derived or this or that. And so now, now other people are getting in, but mostly they're either doing birds that aren't real and, and, and selling something that's not heritage as heritage, or they might be doing heritage ber birds, but they're doing it from really lines that aren't quality, that don't have the quality of Frank's lines that haven't been bred in the old style like Frank learned. And so they just, they haven't maintained quality or they're, they're doing very low quality or they're having a hard time, you know, keeping the size. And so now there's, what happened is that Frank kind of started a movement with raising the standard breeds, but there's no real infrastructure to, to do that properly, whether it comes from people knowing how to do the finances and how to do it successfully, how to do the breeding, people understanding how to cook the birds and how to communicate the culinary differences of the birds. And then people just being willing to pay the price and understanding that just consumers understanding how much better of a product you're getting 
and and all the benefits you're getting because it's quite more it's a lot more expensive to produce so what we found with the conservancy is that well frank had been able to achieve success now as this new market's trying to grow there's no there there needs to be a lot of help and we don't have land grant universities helping we don't have the government we don't have billions of dollars in Tyson to actually make this successful so we create so frank started the good shepherd poultry ranch you know 20 years ago but what we started recently you know in the two three years ago was the good shepherd conservancy and the conservancy's mission is to through food production preserve these breeds and so what we're doing is a few different things to try to help get the birds back on the market and grow their populations through food production and one of the examples that we like to give is the is the bison how the bison was just on the edge of extinction and then it was saved through getting it back getting it into 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 farming getting it on farms getting people eating bison and that was able to raise their numbers and similar and so we have a vision of something similar for standard bread poultry is getting them back into food production in order to really grow their populations and there's a few different ways that we're doing it one is by building a center on frank's farm in kansas the good shepherd conservancy center where people can come and learn about these breeds learn how to farm them how to cook them learn learn about them at a center learn about the birds consumers farmers all different types of folks and we've built the first building there and we're working on building out the interior now and so that's one of the pieces that we're trying to do and the other big program that we're working on is the good shepherd farm fellowship where now we've got for our first cohort we just started our first cohort this year and we've got 16 farmers and these are farmers that we're going to help them be successful independently successful in raising these birds what we really need to do with the conservancy is have lots of competitors all over the country for frank because that's what you need to have a successful industry and have more bloodlines throughout the country uh, that are that are independently successful and growing and our eventual goal is we pick 10 initial breeds four breeds of four varieties of turkey and six breeds of chickens to grow we want to grow the numbers out to 100,000 birds that's our first goal and then we hopefully will grow from there but it's to get these back into get lots of farmers raising them get lots more populations growing throughout the country get these farmers know train these farmers in what frank knows is how to breed them and how to raise them successfully how to market them successfully and just grow this out our focus is not to end factory farming that's just something that you know, is out of our hands and that is you know that's not something that we're looking to do. we're just trying to preserve the the genetics and pass on the knowledge of how to breed and how to market the birds to the next generation of farmers and there's about 16 or so farms signed up and my and i've got a new farm here now in new jersey and my farm even though i'm also the executive director of the conservancy my farm is also in the program because i have a lot to learn as well you know from frank about the breeding and i want to be a part of this mission a part of the next generation of farmers that can help pass on the traditions that were passed on over the years to frank's mentors and now from frank hopefully a new generation of farmers and so that's that's the good shepherd farm fellowship program and the other piece is having a center in kansas where people can go and learn hands-on about the breeding and the farming of these birds 
I think this is so critical, everything you said, and and just to tease that out, that we're preserving biodiversity, both in farms, on farm, having multiple species. We're preserving the biodiversity of these important standard bred birds and their genetics that are critical. And, and something we didn't touch on that I want to make sure that we do is these animals know how to mate and, and how to propagate and how to be on the land and how to do some foraging which I know is is an important piece when we're talking about something like a Cornish cross that that isn't viable outside of the factory farm system, that, that it's really adapted to that environment and adapted to environment and helping farmers learn what, Frank, you said so beautifully, was that there's this history of men and women that devoted their life to these breeds, to understanding their their form and, and what they're purpose was for, whether that was meat or dual purpose. And making this, and we talk a lot about this on the podcast, we can't have any of this if we don't have financial sustainability as farmers working in a very tight margin business. If you're working on one to two percent margins, there there is no room for error. And we have to build that up as well. And the, what makes poultry so exceptionally hard is, is that you know, if you're doing cattle or hogs or something, to cut them up. So you have all these many different parts. And so if there's a problem here with the back of the hog, we got the rest of the hog, whatever. But if you're doing turkeys, if you're doing chickens, when we send them to a plant, they have to be perfect. Or they get cut up. And the value just drops to nothing. But it, it costs me just as much to raise that imperfect bird as it does the perfect one. I mean, we just processed turkeys yesterday, and the first thing I want to see is that report from the plant, how many made it. What is your what is your attrition rate on that? We, you know, last year, I don't, I haven't gotten the total numbers, but last year they were blown away that they had never seen a flock of turkeys come through. And we go to a big commercial plant that 86% of our, my birds got grade A. So that's a huge number in the industry to get that many birds through and have them come out grade A. Now, since then, you know, through the years, as he just said, I've learned to find that other market, that people that will buy the cut-ups, that people will buy the ground turkey, they'll buy the ones that didn't make grade A, but they weren't condemned. (laughs) They were so perfectly edible, but they had a torn skin or they had a torn leg or something. and so. You know, we now have a market for everything, and that's real important. In fact, I spoke at the National Turkey Federation in Washington, D.C. a number of years ago. They invited me, which I thought was interesting. Uh, They wanted to hear what I was up to. And this is the industry. And it was fun to go because I got to hear a lot of stuff behind doors. But anyway, basically, I just told them their own history. Wow. Yeah. You know, I said, what I'm telling you is where you all started. Is I've come up with nothing new. How I farm and what I do is what everybody did beforehand. So it, it's, it gets really difficult, but we have to, I have to meet all the rules, the same thing that the USDA and the FSIS and all those people have to go through. I have to meet the, we have to meet the same thing. And Jeb is finding as he's getting ready, he's finding out what it takes to get a label to get 
a new product approved so that you can label it as USDA and FIS and what can go on a label. And as he just told me, you know, back when I got my first one 20 years ago, uh, and I was the first one ever to be granted certified standard bread. As that evolves, it gets, you know, as any government program does, it gets more and more complicated. And they want more and more. So he's had to find, you know, all this, fill out all this paperwork. And these are things the customer on the other end has no idea what hoops we have to jump through. Uh, I'm sure your your butcher shop, bless your heart, I've been in enough of them and processing plants. I, that That's another whole world. Oh, yeah. Bureaucracy. There's a lot of, lot of hoops. What they have to go through to keep your doors open and the constant inspections, the constant paperwork, uh, you know, and especially, you know, and plus, you know, the amount of turkeys I do for this year, which is around 8,000 this year, one plant by Butterball in Missouri does a coffee break. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, they're doing they're doing tens and tens of thousands of birds per day. Yeah, it's like the largest producer of turkey meat in the world is Liberty Foods up in Minnesota, a company nobody's ever heard of. And I, I met the owner and all their people. They have four plants up there where they each plant kills 20,000 turkeys a day all year round. Uh, so they're killing 80,000 turkeys a day, and they don't sell one whole bird because there's no money in whole turkeys for the industry. Now, they might this year because inflation has hit and the price of grain has skyrocketed and it's costing us all a lot more this year. But the real value, when you buy a turkey at a grocery store, a whole turkey grocery store, it's a hen. They're all hens. Nobody can buy a tom anymore. Now, the turkeys you get from me, you're getting hens and toms. But and when I was a kid, if you went to the grocery store, it said young tom or young hen on the package. That's all gone. It's all hens because the real money for the industry is that 40-pound tom that they get in 19 weeks uh, because that turns into where the real money is, and that's that Lewis Rich deli meat that you buy at the grocery store that you now are paying 5 or $6 for six ounces. And if you take that per pound, you're paying about 16 to $20 a pound for that turkey meat because it's already packaged and cooked and everything. So that's what we have to compete against. But they, you know, now they can get a 40-pound tom, and they now have factories that that's all they do, and they're all broke down. They're not sold as whole birds. They're all turned into value-added products. So that same factory farm or factory system up in Minnesota, they have two plants that that's all they do is turn that meat into deli meat. So that's where the real money is. I didn't even think about that. Because that's what happens 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all year round. Thanksgiving is a leader. It's, it's a throwaway thing for them. For us, it's our whole year of work. For them, it doesn't mean a thing. It's the same way. Don Tyson figured it out before anybody. He went to McDonald's in 1970. He kept going, kept going, kept going. He had to find a way of making a value-added chicken product. If he was going to survive, he had to have, because his markets fluctuated up and down. He had to find a way of how can he take chicken meat and sell it every day that wouldn't vary in cost. And he, the chicken McNugget literally saved the broiler industry because now they could produce that every day 
throw it in boxes, throw it in the freezer, and it was always there. That was a reliable income for them, no matter what. Now, everybody from Burger King to Chick-fil-A to all of them, that is what the whole system is based on now. So when you raise a natural product like we do, a normal growth, normal animal, and, and we're charging this horrendous price, we're actually charging the real price of what it costs because we don't have a billion boxes of chicken McNuggets or turkey deli meat in the freezer to support our company. So this is what we have to compete against. My husband and I often refer to that as artificially suppressing the real cost of food and the real cost of doing business, that we don't see how much it actually costs to raise animals because the industry has all of these revenue streams that that funnel into something else for them. And I think that this is really important. Yeah, the, and people don't realize is, is there's just so much to this that people don't realize. I mean, when they go in and they buy that bucket of chicken, or that chicken McNugget, or that Chick-fil-A sandwich, they're paying a horrendous price per pound. But it's broke down into these units, and it's convenient. They didn't, you know, uh, they didn't have to go home and bread the chicken and go through all the thing and, and fry it in their frying pan or put it in the oven and bake it or whatever. So you, convenience, people are willing to pay a fortune, a fortune. for convenience. Yes. And I think that it, it drives a lot of consumer behavior these days and that there has to be a, a shift into food that takes time, takes time to raise. It, it takes finesse to cook. It takes care in all aspects of it from, from farm to table. Well, it's, you know, you know, is Alice Waters, who's been a huge, you know, supporter of what I do. Bless her heart. She's lots of fun to be around. She said it shouldn't be convenient. Yes. It should be special. It should be something that you don't just eat half of it and throw in the trash can. That if you pay five or six dollars a pound for a turkey or eight dollars a pound for a turkey, You've got something special and you're going to value it. You're going to keep the bones and make a broth. You know, as my mother said, we ate everything but the honk. And so but that whole way of thinking is completely gone now. And all of these issues we've been talking about, if, if, if your concern is welfare, it's always the animal pays the price. It's always the animal has to pay this price. My animal, my turkeys, may, some of them may only live six, seven months of life, but at least they've had a, you know, a decent life. You know, that's like people who focus on one thing or they focus on how the animal was killed, was humane or not. I always tell people, you know, I'm going to shoot you and you can, you know, if I do, you have a choice of how you're going to die. You can either suffer for six weeks, or you can suffer for six, or, or have no sufferings for six months. So, and it, you know that whole thing is important to people. And I don't want to get into the welfare because that's another whole issue. But if you care about that, then Santa Bread's the only way to go. I love that, and I, I agree. You know, we process all of our own animals. We just raise all of our own meat, and those animals lead good lives and they just have bad seconds maybe if that and 
our, our turkeys are killed humanely and they're killed within seconds. And that's just a tiny part of their life. But before they got there, they got to be turkeys and they got to run, they got to jump, they got to fly. And not only got to, they were capable of it. Yes. The modern industrial chicken and turkey cannot run. It cannot jump. It cannot fly. It can't do anything natural. That's one of the saddest things in the world is to watch those industrial turkeys, because I raised some here for a research study, just killed me to watch them. Their brains still wanted to be natural. Of course. The man has not removed that from their brain. They still wanted to roll in the dirt. They still wanted to dust themselves. They still wanted to run, and they were incapable of it. Yeah. Because we have so deranged their shape. I remember there was a one of my most imp- things that was most impactful on me was early on um the first time i took some of frank's birds so you know uh, one of the things that i'm trying to do is get these birds on the kosher market which is a very small market in america the kosher meat market and so it's a difficult undertaking i've been kind of working towards it for a while and um that's part of the things i want to do on the farm well the first the the all the kosher poultry plants in america except for one are on the east coast and Frank's farms in Kansas, in part true, I'm starting my own farm out here. And so the first time I took Frank's, I took birds to kosher plant. I took, uh, I took 160 birds from Frank and I drove them, uh, I drove them to New York to get kosher slaughtered. And, uh, I brought them to the processing plant, a small, smallest kosher plant in the country. And <clears throat> I brought them and, you know, I brought these birds and they had been, it was a 24 hour drive. We drove straight from kansas and you know that's a very long hard you know hard drive on a bird and and we'd driven them and you know we brought them in and uh you know and then there was these other birds there that they were the normal birds that they process and our birds were waiting to get processed and so those birds were getting processed those those birds were from a you know you know certified humane uh plant and you know a poultry farm in uh in pennsylvania that was like an hour two hours away you know those farms from a you know pretty well-known producer and um and you know they produced you know some birds for this 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 kosher plant and and so um and they were all cornish grasses you know and after their one or two hour drive whatever it was that they went through to get there i mean each one looked like it was ready to die it was just a difference between these birds that are driven an hour and these birds like 24 hours was just night and day and just you can see the just the difference in the birds is just it's it's incredible you know it's incredible to see the difference it is and i i have one last little question about cooking unless there's anything that you guys want to add which i i could talk to the both of you all day i'm just fascinated by the trajectory of the poultry industry and how much it's formed the basis for our our modern food system as you said frank and One of the things I'll say is that in five years, five, six years of selling these turkeys at the shop, and we've sold thousands, people come back and it's a, it's a high price to pay per pound per bird. And, and we know that. And we have shared your incredible story, but I have people that come back and talk about these birds with a reverence and a fervor that is unparalleled, that this has become the centerpiece of their Thanksgiving, not in the way that the turkey is, but this 
practice of connecting back to standard bread poultry and just what an incredible flavor difference and taste difference that there is that that your practices that whether it's breeding and how you raise them really are made manifest in the meat of that bird and it just truly is something that's really special and so i i just really thank you for the work that both of you do in this space and i can attest to the fact that people say there's just nothing like it real fast i'll let jeb talk more about cooking specifically, but real fast, one of the things is, is how they taste has nothing to do with how they were raised or what they were fed. It's the genetics. It's the genes. It's how the cells are laid down. I always tell people, I don't care how much you love a horse and how well you treat it, how much you let it run free and eat green grass and feed it organic, it isn't going to become a zebra. It is what it is at the moment of its conception. My turkeys look the same now as they did 100 years ago. And, and we have maintained that same genetic line. And how they taste and how they live and, and how they cook it has to do with the genes, the genetics behind it, and what I selected for. Chickens, it's even greater. I've entered numerous food tasting contests with my chickens, and so far I've yet to be beat. But one of my favorite ones was I did in, in North Carolina, and they actually asked the judges to write comments. And one of the judges wrote on the card, I didn't know chicken had a taste, and I'd never tasted chicken. And, and she wrote, I'm not too sure if I like it or not. <laughs> But I just thought it was amazing that, that but the industry is quite pride, has a lot of pride in that they have produced this protein product that tastes like nothing. And that's why all the recipes are on how much garlic or Mexican spice or whatever you add to it. So it'll taste like something. And the turkey industry is doing the same thing. White meat on a turkey, commercial turkey, tastes like nothing. And that's why you got to inject it with all this stuff. And most of what they inject is I've been to the big factories and watches. They had all the salt to everything. So cooking and how the animal tastes has much to do, to me, number one is the genetics behind it and what has been selected. I mean, my turkeys, the meat is darker. And what that is telling you is that animal was able to oxygenate its muscle. That's a, the darker the meat the more exercise, the more oxygen, the more trace minerals and vitamins and so on have gotten into that muscle to cause it to darken. So I've had some people who have gotten turkeys from me and they've never seen dark meat. I mean, the dark meat on my chickens and my turkeys almost as dark as beef. But again, that's because of it. Anyway, I'll let you talk about cooking. <laughs> I just, I just want to, you know, and we can just touch base on this and I'm happy to speak to it too, having cooked many, many of your birds over the years, but that, you know, what we said earlier is that a lot of the way that we handle food has changed. And so this sort of invites a very different process of cooking. And 
it doesn't need much, and but it does need a little bit of finesse. And I pulled this quote from Julia Child, who was around when chicken still, I think, tasted like chicken that I really love. And I think it's true of turkey, too, which is chicken should be so good in itself that it is an absolute delight to eat as a perfectly plain butter, roast, sauce, or grill. And I think that that's just reflective of how much flavor is possible when we look for standard bread poultry that's raised well. And we've talked a lot about flavor on this podcast and how it happens both genetically and by what things they're eating. But I think that cooking is this chance to really connect back to your food. And so I don't know if there's a couple of just quick words you want to say about that. Well, you just said about what they eat. You know, there was a wonderful study done back in the 1950s in which they fed turkeys various things to see how that would change the flavor and taste or texture of the meat. And there was certain things you do not want to feed a turkey because it will come through. Fish meal is one of them, unless you want your turkey to have a really heavy fishy taste to it or whatever. But there were certain things that, if the, you know, when I was in South Texas, I lived down there a long time, I had turkeys down there. They were big on feeding their turkeys chili patines so that the turkey meat actually had a chili taste to it when you, you know, and the turkeys loved eating those little tiny berries that were called chili patines are extremely hot. So it can make a difference in in what you do feed them. But when I was talking about the genetics, that has more to do with how the meat is laid down, uh, the quality, the texture of the meat, and so on has far more to But it's not either or, it's both and, you know, it really is. You you can't feed them into changing, uh, but you can change the taste of the meat by what you feed them. That is such a good, that's beautiful. And so, and, you know, I actually had a professor from the University of Kentucky who called and she wanted to do all this research and she wanted to get chickens from me. And I said, well, research. And so, no, I think it was chickens or turkey, maybe it was turkeys. And I hated telling her, but I said, that work's already been done. All you got to do is go back to Dr. Mars, Stanley Marsden's work that was done. It's not what she wanted to hear. I think she was looking for a grant. And, uh, you know, there's lots of that, you know, it's like Jeff said, he's getting these old cookbooks. And that's what I always tell people. If you want to cook one of our turkeys or one of our chickens, get a cookbook written prior to 1950 and follow the instructions because no other genetic existed prior to that. What we're eating today is, and especially with chickens, has only been in existence on this earth for about 30 years. So, you know, it, it's an experiment that we're on. And, and I think we're failing because that's why morbid obesity is truly way out of sight in this country. There's actually a really interesting study that looks at rates of obesity with with the rates of industrialized poultry consumption. And correlation doesn't equal causation. But I think that there's... I was part of that study guy from England who does that obese chicken cause obese humans. And he actually went back and and I, I found the studies, I have them also, comparing the nutritional value of four ounces of chicken meat of 1950, 1960, 1970, up to today, and how much we have lost. 
you know, it's like when they, they're doing this with my turkeys, a case they right now, but two years ago they did it with my chickens. To get the same amount of trace minerals out of one of, out of four ounces of chicken, you can eat one of my chickens or you have to eat six industrial chickens to get the same amount of trace minerals that you get out of one of Whoa, my chickens. Frank. So there is three times the amount of cholesterol, LDL, in a modern industrial chicken compared to one of mine. You get four ounces of the Cornish rock, it's 17 grams of protein, mine are 23 to 24. It has nothing to do with how they fit, how, what they're fit. In fact, one of the things Dr. Boyle said she had never seen when they did study um, uh, and to look for vitamins within the meat of my chicken, they had never seen vitamin C before. My chickens actually found vitamin C in the muscle. There's also three times the amount of mitochondria. Oh, fascinating. That's a direct result of oxygenation. To be able to, that's why an athlete who runs and is able to consume oxygen and produce energy has, has through, the, through exercising, moving of the muscle, has increased the number of mitochondria per cell. I mean, per muscle fiber, not per cell, but per muscle fiber. And our chickens actually have greater amounts. The more of a couch potato has very few. And also, it's the mitochondria that store vitamins. So the more mitochondria, the more vitamins you're getting out of that. But the trace minerals are the results of longevity. Yeah. For trace minerals to build up in the bone, the animal has to live long enough to do that. Yes, they have to because they're getting it from their their feed and their forage. I think those are that is incredibly interesting. I would love to see those studies. I would be curious too if if some of the mitochondrial density is due to having access to dirt and sunshine, uh, which there are quite a few human studies looking at mitochondrial density as a result of being exposed to the full spectrum of both infrared and UV light, as well as uh, that electron communication that happens between us and the ground. But then the LDH and the LA and the HDL, when even human babies or animals or even chickens or turkeys, when they're born, they're born with high levels of LDL because they need that type of fat energy for that rapid growth. And for it to convert, because the chain for HDL is much bigger than the LDL, for that to happen, you have to have three things. Oxygenation, you have to have muscle movement has to happen. And it has to happen at the level of the cellular level, and you have to have longevity because building that HDL chain takes much more energy, and you have to live long enough for that to happen. And if you kill everything at six or seven weeks, the animal hasn't lived long enough for that conversion to happen. And not only that, they don't have the oxygenation or the movement. They have terrible oxygen. Yeah, they can't oxygen. And they, and they don't move barely. They barely walk. Yeah, they're immobile. Oh, I'm just fascinated. Thank you so much for this. It all it all tends to kind of come together, you know. Everything everything builds on itself, you know. One of the things I convinced him of is I told him a few years ago when he was here. I said, if you want to eat the best turkey you ever had in your life, take one of my three or four year old toms. I said, you're going to have flavor like you've never had in Turkey before because that Turkey has lived long enough 
to evolve into this heavy, dark flavor. And I convinced him. <laughs> yeah, and I had one. It was, it was incredible. Very hard to get your hands on, but... They are. We've raised a couple and they're, I mean, it's just incredible. And and it does because all of those, all of that, we, I had a guest on who you might be really interested in, actually. His name is Dr. Stefan Van Vliet. And he looks at phytochemical richness of meat in different raising practices and genetics. And it takes time for that phytochemical richness, for trace minerals, for all of these different things to accumulate in that muscle tissue in a way that yeah, and in the bone that we actually also read as flavor, that, that this is part of that flavor richness and, curiously enough, is also part of satiety, that your body is really looking for trace mineral richness in terms of we're looking for that concentration of, of vitamin C and zinc and B12 and selenium at, to feel satiety. The other thing is that is the time of year you kill the animal. The old people knew this. And this is totally gone out of industrial production today. If you kill a turkey and eat it in July, it's going to taste quite different than if you kill it in December. There was a reason in the old days of seasonal food, because they knew that's when it was at its best. My mother always said a goose is no good unless it's been snowed on two or three times. I agree with that as somebody who raises geese. <laughs> and that turkeys should go through a cold spell before you ever kill them. We only killed hogs when I was a kid in January. And they had multiple reasons, but they also said you want the most fat, and that's where the flavor is, but also because you don't want flies and everything. But that whole idea of seasonal stuff is completely gone. I mean, we, do, we have turkeys at Thanksgiving because historically that's when they were ready. Yeah. And it's also historically, I mean, just if you look at I'm 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 in upstate New York and just looking at wild turkey populations and when that is going to be at its finest is right around that late November harvest date. Yeah, upstate New York is where the whole industrial domestic not industrial, the whole first bronze turkey was developed is in upstate New York. I can see why I look at them every single day outside of my my uh, my kitchen window, and my my husband and I actually hunt them as well. I've been told you can ask your husband. I've been told the original turkey that was used was up around Niagara, and it was a wild turkey that was known for its exceptional size. And they actually took that wild turkey and crossed it with what they imported. This is in 1840, 1830. Uh, with the, what they were importing from England, because people don't understand how turkeys came about. You know, Columbus got them down in Central America and Mexico. That's where it started. And they went to Europe and from Europe, they came back to New York and Massachusetts. But they were quite small. They were tiny little birds. They began to cross them with the turkeys up around Niagara. And they developed what they called the mammoth bronze or the black mammoth bronze. Uh, a Reverend Avery in Whoppersville, New York, is the one who originally gave it that title and won the very first champion turkey in Boston in 1848 with one of his mammoth bronze. So it's a New York bird. It is. It's an incredible one. Okay. This is this is just so delightful. I do want to briefly cover cooking. I literally could talk to you both all day. This has been fascinating. But let's talk, let's talk about cooking these birds. Um, I could maybe give some, I've just been, and Frank has a lot of things as well, but I could give some 
I'm working actually on some uh, on cooking uh, resources for the birds right now. So I've kind of got this on the mind. I just compiled a lot of different resources for for the birds. Now it's a little bit different with the chickens and the turkeys, but also it's kind of the same story in a sense. You know, I, th- I think the first piece of understanding how to cook heritage standard red poultry is understanding the difference of what the bird is and what it does on the ground. When you have an industrial bird, they don't move and they're killed very young, right? Uh, I went to the one time, you know, when I went to a pasture raised uh, poultry uh, turkey farm that was doing Cornish crosses and and, and broad-breasted white turkeys, and the, I went to the turkeys and they didn't move. I walked up to them and they were just standing in place the entire time. I saw like them barely maybe move one or two steps. And whereas Frank's birds, they don't stop moving, you know, and then they're also around twice as long. And what that does is that causes the leg meat primarily to become uh, much better oxygenated with a lot more flavor and a lot more color, but also a lot more texture. And in order to get that meat soft, it needs to be cooked a very long time. Now, what I've actually now found is that there's two ways. You can cook it very quickly for as long as the bird's not too old. You can cook it very quickly and you'll get a relative, you have to cook it at a very high heat, get through it fast, and you can get a relatively soft bird, but it's going to be a little bit rubbery, a little bit not quite what you're used to. That's one way to go about it. That's the way some recipes that you find online go about it, although it's not going to produce the Unless you get a very young bird, which are hard to find in the market, like the old broilers, like an eight-week bird, it's it's hard to really get the perfect texture. So usually what people want to do is cook the birds for a long time. And that gets that is enough time to break down those hard muscle tissues in the legs to get them soft. But if you do that without any liquid, what happens is by the time those muscle tissues get soft, they get dried out. And it turns into like a jerky. Yeah. And so the main thing is, and this is mainly with the legs. When you get when you're talking about breast meat, you can kind of cook it pretty much the same way as you do any other breast meat because it's not been used very much. It's not they don't use it to walk around. So that meat is can be cooked, can be fried or grilled or whatever it is on almost any bird unless it's very old and will have uh, a good texture and it can be cooked relatively similarly to what people are used to in the stores, although what people are used to in the stores is maybe has actually a much bigger breast. So you might actually even cook it a little bit less time because the breast is maybe half the size. People usually like to cook these birds for special occasions whole. Now, I think this is true for any turkey or any bird, any any bird that you do. You have a hard time um, between the breast meat and the dark meat getting it even. So always the best way to cook a bird in terms of have the best flavor is to separate the breast and 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 the legs and cook them separate and that includes with turkeys you hit on my favorite thing and my husband and i for many many years have separated our breasts and our legs and cooked them separately and i think that is truly the way to go and we've developed our own little way that we like to cook them in that but i think that that you've really hit the nail on the head and i love that you brought that up before we leave where can people find you and i want to ask this question can people how can they raise your lines of standard bread poultry? Is that is that an option at this time? Uh, we're okay. working on okay. that. We can we can leave <laughs> we can leave it there. I, I well, you know, I mean, I think we, that is our farm fellowship program is to is to is to 
get people the lines and we have our first cohort and we're working with them to get them started with our birds. That's 15 farms. And we do want to have more. So first people can find us on goodshepherdconservancy.org. Okay, goodshepherdconservancy.org. We'll have links to this too. And uh, and that is where you can find about the conservancy and its mission. You can donate. And then, and then within that site is our fellowship, the Farm Fellowship Program. And people can apply to that program in order to start, you know, getting into the system and getting our birds. And we can help you figure out how to raise them and everything. Right now, we're working with our first cohort. So anything will be for next year for the next cohort. And, you know, we have to, uh, to work on doing this uh, sustainably over time. It's going to take some time. But uh, if you're interested in raising the birds, that's the best way is through the Farm Fellowship. And, um, and if you're interested in the Conservancy, you can find out more on the website. Thank you. Thank you both. Did I miss anything major that you want to leave people with? I don't know. You were talking about cooking. I always thought when I asked my mom, I said, uh, how long do you cook them? And she would say until they're done. And so part of, I think, what you just said that you and your husband had figured out, figured out a way to do it. And sometimes that's what it takes because I've had, we've had very, very few failures with the turkeys. The turkeys are pretty straightforward. They're not that much different than cooking the modern industrial, except for maybe what he just said, you know, wrapping them up or whatever. But we've had a lot of people fail with the chickens because they just don't know what to do. And it's so radically different from there. But, you know, it's interesting that we no longer know how to cook them because up until 50 years ago, that's all there was. And we've lost that. But we've lost that knowledge of how to cook a natural chicken and uh, to make fried chicken out of it. You know, my mother fried a zillion legger and roosters and they were excellent. But, she, you know, but that whole understanding of how to, how to cook with these things. I always tell people it's like going from veal to brisket. You do not treat those two pieces of meat the same. And this is what's happened. You know, the modern baby industrial chicken is veal, but we're selling you as a brisket. So you got to treat it different. Yeah, you know, but we're we're working, we're figuring out some of these, you know, you know the the main differences. You know, we're we're and we're working we're working on on creating some resources that will that will lay these things out in a straightforward, more easy to digest way. But, you know, from everything that I've done, the main difference is in those legs. That's where the main difference is. And that's where people, you know, really get get stopped up, you know. Everything else can be basically cooked more or less the same. But yeah, people have had a lot of trouble with the chickens, but we're working on it. And we've I've compiled, um, uh, you know, a number of old cookbooks um, and and some of the resources to find where you can find many, many more as well as um, recipes and videos from Julia Child, some of her chicken recipes, which are really based off these, uh, Anton Westerman's uh, recipes and some links to his stuff, and as well as some other links and resources about these old birds. I've now compiled a bunch of this stuff in one place. And on that, we're going to add in some, uh, just a cooking guide about, to just give some of the basics, which talks a lot about just, these things that we've talked about here and give people in one easy to digest place, kind of the cooking differences. Cause once you get them, they're not that hard. It's kind of cooking until it's cooked. Like the actual things are actually pretty simple. 
But uh, when you're just used to only cooking veal and suddenly somebody gives you a brisket, you've never seen anything like it before. It's just like you, people just don't know what to do. They get confused. You can turn a brisket into a hard piece of leather yeah. if you don't cook it right. Yeah. Oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. And it's not going to taste good. Well, I I just can't thank the both of you enough. I think that this was an incredibly illuminating episode. And thank you for preserving not just not just these beautiful standard bred birds, but also preserving so much history for us, Frank. I really appreciate your knowledge of how we got to where we are and just how much finesse and care with which you're approaching saving these these standard bred birds. And I'm I'm just I'm deeply appreciative for your time and for your knowledge, both of you. Well thank you for caring. That's important. It takes a lot of people. And so, in fact, that's part of what the conservancy is, is uh, as more and more of my mentors are passing. In fact, I just lost another one at the beginning of this month, Gerald Donnelly up in Canada. Each of these individuals have archives. You know, they, too, have collected. You know, Gerald was 84. And so this is part of what I want the conservancy to do. There's no place for all this stuff to go. And a lot of, I did, this stuff should not go to the dumpsters. And so this is part of what I'm hoping the conservancy will be is a library and a conservancy of arch, archival material. I have three rooms full of stuff because some of my other friends, like Norman, when he died, he gave me his stuff. And so the history needs to be kept. And there is no national headquarters for the American Poultry Association. They have no place for 150 years of collecting. There needs to be a place for this stuff to go and be preserved that people can go and find it. Because the land-grant universities have thrown all this stuff out. I think similar to a seed bank and, you know, a seed bank as well as a breed bank, there has to be a knowledge bank, right? That we have to preserve these traditional farming methods as much as we need to preserve breeds. And I, I honestly think that the future depends on it. And I, I mean that that might sound heavy, but I really think the future depends on it. Yeah, because there is no other way to save these birds than the live animal. There is no other way. You can't have a seed bank for these that you can have for the knowledge, but for the actual animal, we desperately need to find a way to keep them alive and growing. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I forgot to mention with the Good Shepherd Conservancy Center. That's a big piece of and especially that's actually one of the first things that we're building is the archives for all of Frank's, um, he's compiled quite a bit and people also donating um, works, artwork, books, studies, periodicals, a lot, a lot of historical work around maintaining these breeds and the history of them that he's compiled over the years, tens of thousands of, of pieces. And there's people contacting us wanting to donate things for different breeds, actually whole collections for different breeds. And so that's a big part of what we're going to be, especially in the beginning of the Conservancy Center, that's what we're going to be focusing on, is building that archive to maintain that knowledge and then focusing on the Farm Fellowship to maintain the breeds. Wow. The other one, real fast, is, is our work with the youth. I spoke to a number of the extension agents. Like the state of Kansas has a beef day. They have a swine day or hog day. They have nothing for poultry. And they have said, if we can get this center going, they will bring FFA kids, 4-H kids of all ages, and we can begin to have poultry day. And 
I really, that's a lot of where our future is going to be, is if we can help at least introduce this knowledge to the next generation. I figure if we can get one kid out of 500 who gets excited, we have hope for the future. But there's no place for them to go and learn this and to see it. And part of what we want is our second building is live birds, because I think it's important that the kids actually see the live bird. And so, you know, I don't know how we're ever going to raise the money for it, but somehow, you know, we need to be able to find the, the, the knowledge in the building to help the next generation and so and to reach out to the kids. I couldn't agree more. I think that it's so important that kids get involved in agriculture. And I think the beautiful thing about this is not unlike those chickens that we've we've bred to be obese and so far from anything still want to roll in a dust bath. I think that so does too the human want to tend and steward and shepherd animals. And so I think that's an immutable part of our DNA and very much in our favor. Agreed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music. <laughs>